Hey, it's Guy here. So as of this month, there are roughly 7.7 billion people living here on planet Earth. And all those people are using resources like food and oil and water and medicine faster than ever before. So today on the show, we're going to explore our finite world and if it's even possible to innovate our way out of it. This episode is called Finite, and it originally aired in July of 2015. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So like a lot of people, back in the late 70s, Mark Plotkin had a really bad trip. The worst experience of my life was taking ayahuasca with a shaman from the Colombian Amazon. And in that, I witnessed my death. Mark Plotkin is an ethnobotanist, which means he studies plants, specifically plants that grow in the Amazon. And because he's interested in the medicinal power of those plants to heal... Mark will spend a lot of time communing with the native tribes who use those plants to brew things like a tea called ayahuasca. Well, we would describe it as a hallucinogen, a term the Indians don't like. They call it remedio, a medicine. It's the original medicine, the most important medicine. A medicine used to welcome guests, a medicine only the rudest guest would refuse, and a medicine that Mark was offered that day in the Colombian Amazon. And I drank the first cup, and I felt pretty good. And then a couple hours later, they will either say to you, you should drink another cup, or do you want another cup, or don't drink another cup. And I recalled he offered it to me, or I asked for it, and I took it, and it just went downhill from there. Like right away? Yeah, right away. What do you remember? Just crying and screaming and wishing I was dead. What did you feel like? I was in my misery, and I wanted to be put out of it. It was terrible. You were in pain, nausea, I mean... All of that. So how did you experience death? I saw myself die and dead. But painful and horrible and terrible. It wasn't like I just floated to the top of the room, and there I was. It was awful. Uh, And and then it got worse. Uh, I ended up vomiting purple phosphorescent scorpions. Mark is not speaking literally. And, you know, the shamans say when you take ayahuasca, you get out of it what you need to. And so afterwards, I said to the shaman, why did you do that to me? And he said, the fate of my culture, the fate of my forest is joined with that of you and your organization. I wanted you to experience death so you would never fear it again. And the point here is not that shamans have all the answers, ayahuasca has all the answers. They don't and it doesn't. The fact is that some of these systems of healing, some of these magical plants can do things that we cannot. So you've probably heard this before, that the Amazon is the most biodiverse place on Earth, full of natural resources with potentially life-saving medical applications. But its most valuable resource is quite possibly knowledge, the secrets that only native tribes know about. Knowledge that Mark Plotkin described from the TED stage. Four years ago, I injured my foot in a climbing accident, and I went to the doctor. She gave me heat, cold, aspirin, narcotic painkillers, anti-inflammatories, cortisone shots. Didn't work. Several months later, I was in the Northeast Amazon, walked into a village, and the shaman said, you're limping. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. He looked me in the face and he said, take off your shoe and give me your machete. (laughs) He walked over to a palm tree and carved off a fern, threw it in the fire, applied it to my foot, threw it in a pot of water, and had me drink the tea. The pain disappeared for seven months. When it came back, I went to see the shaman again. He gave me the same treatment, and I've been cured for three years now. Who would you rather be treated by? (laughs) 
Now, make no mistake, Western medicine is the most successful system of healing ever devised. But there's a saying in Suriname that I dearly love. The rainforest hold answers to questions we have yet to ask. But as you all know, it's rapidly disappearing here in Brazil, in the Amazon, around the world. The world is full of finite resources. Some of them we don't tap into like we should, and some we use as if they'll never run out. Our show today, Finite, ideas about preserving the dwindling resources on the one planet we inhabit and how to make the most of what's left. From water? We've underpriced water. We've overexploited it. We don't actually regulate it. We just use too much. To oil? There are no non-radical solutions left, such as the extent of the climate crisis that we really need to be doing a lot of really new thinking. To things you might not think about as valuable resources. Just like with oil, it's getting more and more difficult to tap into pools of antibiotic effectiveness. And how to use just, you know, what we need. One of the things that I see in working with and studying indigenous cultures is the concept of the finite and the concept of gratitude. Indians spend a lot of time thanking the gods of the forest, thanking the animals of the forest, uh, not taking more than they need. Mark Plotkin has been studying those indigenous cultures in the Amazon since 1977. And I've been going many times a year ever since, often extended periods in the good old days when I was a graduate student. Mark follows tribesmen through the rainforest, asking about plants and herbs, how they use them, speaking their language. Uh, the two tribal languages in which I deal are Sananantongo, uh, which is the predominant trading language in the northeast Amazon, and Trio. That second language Mark speaks, Trio, is spoken by just 4,000 people, and most of them live in tribes along the border between Brazil and the country of Suriname. And those tribes generally don't keep records. They don't write down what they know about the local plants. So Mark learned Trio in part to help preserve that knowledge that might have otherwise been lost to history, knowledge that could contain secrets to new medicines. My colleague, the late great Lauren McIntyre, discoverer of the source lake of the Amazon, Laguna McIntyre, and the Peruvian Andes was lost on the Peru-Brazil border about 30 years ago. He was rescued by a group of isolated Indians called the Matzes. They beckoned for him to follow them into the forest, which he did. There they took out palm leaf baskets. There they took out these green monkey frogs, and they began licking them. It turns out they're highly hallucinogenic. McIntyre wrote about this, and it was read by the editor of High Times magazine. You see that ethnobotanists have friends in all sorts of strange cultures. This guy decided he would go down to the Amazon and give it a whirl, or give it a lick. And he did. And he wrote, My blood pressure went through the roof. I lost full control of my bodily functions. I passed out in a heap. I woke up in a hammock six hours later. Felt like God for two days. An Italian chemist read this and said, I'm not really interested in the theological aspects of the green monkey frog. What's this about the change in blood pressure? Now, there's an Italian chemist who's working on a new treatment for high blood pressure based on peptides in the skin of the green monkey frog, and other scientists are looking at a cure for drug-resistant Staph aureus. How ironic if these isolated Indians and their magic frog prove to be one of the cures. So years ago, pharmaceutical companies would actively look for potential sources of medicine in places like the Amazon. And from that came... Novocaine uh, from the coca plant of South America. The first anesthesia was from curare, arrow poison alkaloids from the Amazon. Pilocarpine is what they used to put in our eyes at the doctor's office to dilate our pupils. But today, because technology has made it so much easier to make drugs from synthetic materials... Pharmaceutical companies aren't that interested in trudging through the rainforests to find new ones, which means there could be useful plant and animal species in the rainforest we don't even know about and aren't working to conserve. Every species is a genius at something. That's why they survive. Uh, It wasn't me who said that. It was Leonardo da Vinci. So doesn't it make sense to save all these pieces? What I also want to add is it's not just about a utilitarian approach to conservation. Let's save it because it's a cure for cancer. Let's save it because it may help us with global warming. I want to save it because it's there. I mean, so if there is all this potential information that that we don't know, 
I mean, could there be tribes out there with that knowledge that, that we don't even know exist? I do believe there are isolated tribes that have had no contact with the outside world. Assuming the outside world are guys like you or me and not maybe the next tribe over that they may have traded with. Because I've never met a member of a lost tribe who was lost. These guys know the forest far better than we do. Uncontacted peoples hold a mystical and iconic role in our imagination. These are the people who truly live in total harmony with nature. Why are these people isolated? They know we exist. They know there's an outside world. This is a form of resistance. They have chosen to remain isolated, and I think it is their human right to remain so. But the world is changing. The diminishment of the civil war in Colombia, the outside world is showing up. To the north, we have illegal gold mining, also from the east, from Brazil. There's increased hunting and fishing for commercial purposes. We see illegal logging come in from the south. And in Peru, there's a very nasty business. It's called human safaris. They will take you in to isolated groups to take their picture. Of course, when you give them clothes, when you give them tools, you also give them diseases. We call these inhuman safaris. Now remember, these are preliterate societies. The elders are the libraries. Every time a shaman dies, it's as if a library has burned down. And Mark says to preserve that knowledge, information which could someday lead to new medicines, means we almost have to think about that knowledge like a valuable resource that's disappearing fast. So better protection of national parks, better protection of indigenous lands, penalties, economic penalties for destroying forests in stupid ways. We know all the answers here. But the human animal, the capitalist system, uh, doesn't always do things the right way, the most efficient way, the quickest way. The Greeks and the Romans ran the world for many years, and their empires pooped out for many reasons, one of which is the Greek and the Roman armies ran on wood. Their catapults were made of wood, their ships were made of wood, their chariots were made of wood, their weapons are made of wood. There's no forest left in, in Italy or Greece. So we consider ourselves here in the West as the heir to that great Greco-Roman tradition, a logical man, philosophy, uh, thinking, science. Well, they destroyed their environment and they disappeared. I hope we're not making the same mistake. So the question is, in conclusion, is what the future holds. Let's think differently. Let's make a better world. If the climate's going to change, let's have a climate that changes for the better rather than the worse. Let's live on a planet full of luxuriant vegetation in which isolated peoples can remain in isolation, can maintain that mystery and that knowledge if they so choose. Let's live in a world where the shamans live in these forests and heal themselves and us with their mystical plants and their sacred frogs. Thanks again. Mark Plotkin is the founder of the Amazon Conservation Team. His talk is at TED.com. More on finite resources and the ways to protect them in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to WeWork. Vicky Fullop is the co-founder of textile company and WeWork member Brooke Linen. She chose to move her business into a WeWork office in part because of WeWork's flexible spaces. We hope that we can keep growing and we know that WeWork has really great solutions as companies become mid-size and large and that they would be able to guide us to the best solution. To learn more about how WeWork supports its members' growth through flexible workspace offerings, visit we.co slash space matters. Thanks also to Microsoft. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, for example, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. It's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. The new Surface Pro 6 from Microsoft. 
Hey, and one more quick thing before we get back to the show. If you've ever listened to the credits at the end of this show, you might recognize the names Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei, because for the past few years, they've brought you some of your favorite episodes of TED Radio Hour and How I Built This. And I have some incredibly exciting news. Rund and Ramtin are launching their very own show. It's called Throughline, and it's NPR's first ever history podcast, and it is amazing. But don't just take my word for it. Hear it for yourself. The first episode is out right now. And if you stick around, you'll hear more from Rund and Ramtin a little later in the show. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, finite ideas about the resources we use and how to make the most of what's left. I mean, think about the great American story, right? A bunch of white guys from Europe show up on the East Coast and think the the land is theirs, and they just plow across the continent and use more and more and more. Just go west, young man, and there'll be more resources. But... But, says John Foley? Well, we hit the Pacific and we had to stop. You know, and there isn't any more. We've run out. We have run out of planet, in fact. John Foley is an ecologist who runs the California Academy of Sciences. And um, one thing that I, I talk about a lot with folks is that, you know, think about the last 50 years. In the last 50 years, the human population more than doubled, our use of food and water more than tripled, and our use of fossil fuels more than quadrupled in just 50 years. Wow. That means, yeah, isn't that crazy? That means in that, in a single lifetime, the world has changed more than all of human history combined. Wow. So, but one change, John says, beats all the others. Agriculture is probably the biggest thing we've ever done to the planet. And the one thing that makes agriculture possible water. Uh, turns out 70% or 90%, depending on how you do the bookkeeping, of all the water consumed by people around the world is used for one thing irrigating crops. John Foley says that water and food are connected in a way that is just not sustainable. So think about California, for example. Water problems in California are the first order a food problem. The biggest consumer of water in California right now is alfalfa. All, you know, alfalfa alone is using more water than all of the humans in California combined and most of it's being shipped overseas to use as dairy food you know, for, for cows in the Middle East or in China. So we're exporting California water to the Middle East or China to make milk somewhere else. And so we've underpriced water. We've overexploited it. We don't actually regulate how people pump groundwater out of the ground. You can do that as much as you like. Um, we just use too much. In fact, John argues that agriculture is the most powerful force unleashed on the planet since the end of the Ice Age. And even though it's using up a lot of our land and a ton of our water, he's not saying we should stop growing food, but that we have to be smarter about the way we grow it. Here's John on the TED stage. This is a photograph flying into Arizona. And when you look at it, you're like, what are they growing here? It turns out they're growing lettuce in the middle of the desert using water sprayed on top. But what's really interesting is this water's got to come from someplace, and it comes from here, the Colorado River, irrigating the desert for food or maybe golf courses in Scottsdale. You take your pick. Well, this is a lot of water, and again, we're mining water and using it to grow food. We've literally consumed an entire river for irrigation. And if anything, we're going to have the demands on agriculture increase into the future. It's not going to go away. It's going to get a lot bigger, mainly because of growing population. We're 7 billion people today heading towards at least 9. More importantly, changing diets. As the world becomes wealthier as well as more populous, we're seeing increases in dietary consumption of meat, which take a lot more resources than a vegetarian diet does. So more people eating more stuff and richer stuff And, of course, we have to replace oil with other energy sources that will ultimately have to include some kinds of biofuels and bioenergy sources. So you put these together, it's really hard to see how we're going to get to the rest of the century without at least doubling global agricultural production. But if we keep doing that, I mean, we're going to have to start, like, rationing water all around the world, like how much people use of it and and 
bit, maybe drink and how people grow food and how much of it they get. Like a Mad Max movie, essentially. Yeah, like a Mad Max <laughs> movie, right? Like Mad yeah. Max. I'm, I'm, here's my question. Is that where we're headed? Like, if we do nothing, is that where we're going? And can we, you know, do you think that we'll be able to kind of make that not happen? You know, um, it's kind of funny given the business that I'm in, but I'm actually an optimist. I guess I maybe it's not optimism, but I have hope. Hope's different than optimism. Yeah. And my hope is that we can change that narrative, that humans at their best, when they're pushed into a corner and really see a problem, actually respond magnificently. And technology can help. Um, I'm a big fan of drip irrigation. I'm a big fan of organic farming methods that tend to hold more moisture in the soil, uh, getting rid of lawns, getting rid of things that kind of waste water really conspicuously. Uh, let's tighten up our infrastructure. Let's cover canals so they don't evaporate. Let's get the pipes uh, leaks fixed. And there are lots and lots of things like that we can do. Now, when I talk about this, people often tell me, well, isn't blank the answer? Organic food, local food, GMOs, new trade subsidies, new farm bills. And yeah, we, we have a lot of good ideas here, but not any one of these is a silver bullet. In fact, what I think they are is more like silver buckshot. And I love silver buckshot. You put it together and you've got something really powerful, but we need to put them together. So what we have to do, I think, is invent a new kind of agriculture that blends the best ideas of commercial agriculture and the green revolution with the best ideas of organic farming and local food and the best ideas of environmental conservation. Not to have them fighting each other, but to have them collaborating together. But this is hard, right? I mean, to get people to focus on a problem that's, that's like not in their face, it doesn't seem so urgent. Well, I think a lot of folks would argue that, you know, we're fighting millions of years of evolution as homo sapiens and thousands of years of history as civilized humans. That um, it tells us that we should be out there exploiting resources so we could survive to the next day. Yeah. But if it meant using a little more soil or a little more land or grabbing a few extra animals to eat, that was our job. I mean, we went from a, all of human history, we were basically insignificant compared to the size of the earth. And now suddenly in one generation or so, we've flipped it around. Now humans are bigger than the earth. Our appetite for resources is bigger than what the earth can actually provide. That's never happened before. So we're trying to get as smart as possible in a generation or two to undo millions of years of our evolution and thousands of years of history. That's really hard. Yeah. But we're getting smarter just as we're also getting dumber about the planet. And I'd like to tip the scales to see how we can make the smarter win out. That's John Foley. He's an ecologist and the executive director of the California Academy of Sciences. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. So on the show today, we're talking about finite resources. And here's a story about something we don't normally think of as a resource at all. We heard about it from Ramanan Lakshminarayan. He's an economist who studies the patterns of disease. And the story begins in late December 1940 in Oxford, England. And there's this policeman who shows up at the infirmary in Oxford. And on his day off from work, he had been scratched by a rose thorn, apparently. The policeman was a guy named Albert Alexander, and that little scratch had turned into a nasty infection. His entire side of his cheek is infected and swollen. His eyes were so badly infected that they had to take his eyes out. There's a giant abscess on his face. Now remember, back in 1940, infections were a leading cause of death. Most of the soldiers in major wars didn't die from being shot. They died from infected wounds. If someone had an infection from a simple scratch, uh, they could just wait it out. Uh, There was a good chance of dying. But it just so happened that at a lab not too far from this particular hospital in Oxford where Albert Alexander wound up, researchers were working on an experimental new drug. Which was capable of killing bacteria. It had been discovered purely by accident a couple of years earlier, and it was made from a type of mold. But the researchers didn't know if the drug was safe enough to use on a human being. It had never been tested. And by chance, they found out about Albert Alexander. And they figured this person was going to die anyway, and so why not try out this drug? And they give him this drug. The first day, already, he starts looking a little better. His appetite returns. 
Second day, he looks a whole lot better. Day three, even better. Day four, much better. Fifth day, it looks like this man may actually live. And then they run out of penicillin. Penicillin, the very first antibiotic. So they run out of penicillin, and then what? He died. Wow. But you have to remember, this was such a remarkable experiment to have even worked out because somehow this drug worked in this patient and opened up this entire era of medicine. Everything that we know as modern medicine really goes back to that particular day when Albert Alexander lived because of penicillin. And that was the start of the antibiotics revolution. The fact that you could keep an infection at bay from the body meant that you could now perform surgeries, you could perform long surgeries, and because of that you could have transplants, you could have a root canal. All of these were made possible by the fact that we have antibiotics. We're talking about a, a basically a miracle drug. I mean, arguably one of the most effective and important medical advancements in human history. Absolutely. Antibiotics completely transformed human lifespans overnight. But the antibiotics revolution is starting to unravel. According to the Centers for Disease Control, twice as many Americans now die each year from infections that can't be cured with antibiotics than from HIV-AIDS. And that problem is getting worse. In fact, even as recently as, say, 15 or 18 years ago, I don't recall actually knowing a patient with a resistant infection. But what has happened in the last 10 years has been a remarkable increase in the actual number of people who are dying or are not able to get better because they carry a resistant infection. And by the middle of this century, more people will die from infections than from cancer if the problem isn't solved. It would be like winding the clock back to 1940. So the question is, how did a miracle drug turn into a global health threat? Well, the short answer is we've been overusing them on humans and animals. And the more we use antibiotics, the more opportunities bacteria have to develop resistance. And in some instances, some antibiotics have stopped working entirely. We have used antibiotics in many instances inappropriately. We've used them on farms, presumably to keep animals healthy, but really to help them get fatter a little faster. To save a few pennies per pound of meat, we've squandered what are really the crown jewels of modern medicine. Which is why Ramanan says we need to think of antibiotics in a completely different way. We need to think of them like we think of oil or water as a resource that needs to be protected. Ramanan explained his idea from the TED stage. Now it turns out that there's something fundamental about antibiotics which make it different from other drugs, which is that if I misuse antibiotics, I use antibiotics, not only am I affected, but others are affected as well, in the same way as if I choose to drive to work or take a plane to go somewhere, that the costs I impose on others through global climate change go everywhere, and I don't necessarily take these costs into consideration. Now, that's a problem that's similar to another area that we all know about, which is of fuel use and energy. And of course, energy use both depletes energy as well as uh, leads to, uh, to local pollution and climate change. And typically, in the case of energy, there are two ways in which we can deal with the problem. One is we can make better use of the oil that we have, and that's analogous to making better use of existing antibiotics. And we can do this in a number of ways that we'll talk about in a second. But the other option is the drill-baby-drill option, which in the case of antibiotics is, is to go find new antibiotics. Now, these are not separate. They're related because if we invest heavily in new oil wells, we reduce the incentives for conservation of oil in the same way that's going to happen for antibiotics. The reverse is also going to happen, which is that if we use our antibiotics appropriately, we don't necessarily have to make the investments in, in, uh, in new drug development. I mean, the amazing thing about all this is that there are no alternatives to antibiotics, right? Like in terms of effectiveness. I mean, we have to solve this problem or we're in big trouble. Kai, you're absolutely right. And this is what really worries me about this problem. The only alternatives we have are to prevent the infection with vaccines or infection control or what have you. But honestly, we really don't have a substitute for antibiotics. And no one has figured out that, say, in 50 years from now, we won't need antibiotics because we have X. 
Maybe X will appear, but right now no one is able to see through to see what this X really will be. We really don't have a substitute for antibiotics. Now, this is clearly not a game that can be sustained or one that we can win by simply innovating to stay ahead. And there are ideas that we can borrow from energy that are helpful in thinking about how we might want to do this in the case of antibiotics as well. Now, if you think about how we deal with energy pricing, for instance, we consider emissions taxes, which means we're imposing the costs of pollution on people who actually use that energy. We might consider doing that for antibiotics as well, and perhaps that would make sure that antibiotics actually get used appropriately. And certainly, consumer education works. Very often, people overuse antibiotics without necessarily, or prescribe too much without necessarily knowing that they do so. And feedback mechanisms have been found to be useful both on energy. When you tell someone that they're using a lot of energy during peak hour, they tend to cut back. And the same sort of example has been performed even in the case of antibiotics. We can't stop using antibiotics. It's not an option. That is not an option to solve this problem. It has to be about dramatically reducing how much we use them. It has to be about uh, reducing how we use them, changing how we use them, uh, being clever about how we use them. So, for instance, just imagine if we had a technology which, uh, you know, it was a pill that you ingested with the antibiotic, that the minute the antibiotic had done its work in, in the site of infection, that this pill would then absorb the remaining antibiotics so that the antibiotic wasn't running around willy-nilly around your body, killing bacteria and creating resistance. That would dramatically reduce the collateral damage that the antibiotic will do. Yeah, I had to take antibiotics for 10 days, but after, you know, 48 hours, I felt fine, and probably after five days it was gone. Mm -hmm. But you still have to take it for 10 days. You know, the history of that is very interesting. The earliest antibiotics were never actually tried out in clinical trials of the kind we had today because most of our antibiotics predate the laws that required the randomized trials. So much of what we know about how long antibiotic therapy needs to be is by trial and error that goes back to Albert Alexander. Wow. So, so Albert Alexander, five days didn't work for him, so they didn't want to take a chance. They said 10 or 14 days of therapy, and that's what you have to go with. And that may be contributing to the problem, that we are taking it for too long. Absolutely. Now, you've got to remember here, on the one hand, the main actor in our society who's handing out antibiotics is a doctor. Yeah. The doctor cares about the patient that's sitting in front of him or her. And if she sees a patient with some likelihood that the infection may come back in five days or six days, if she didn't treat for long enough, then, you know, she just wants to provide an antibiotic for 10 days or maybe even 14 days because that's what protects the patient. But that's not what protects the rest of society. But the doctor is not hired to protect the rest of society. She's there to protect the patient, and that's what she does. We've had these technologies to control nature only for the last 70, 80, or 100 years. And essentially, in a blink we have squandered our ability to control because we have not recognized that natural selection and evolution was going to find a way to get back. And we need to completely rethink how we're going to use measures to control biological organisms and rethink how we incentivize the development, introduction, in the case of antibiotics, prescription of these valuable resources. Thank you. Ramanan Lakshmanarayan, he's an economist who studies the patterns of disease and directs the Center for Disease, Dynamics, Economics, and Policy. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Coming up on the show, a future without oil that doesn't have to be like a Mad Max movie. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. Are you ready to make moves with your money? Invest with E-Trade and you'll see how simple investing can be. No matter your level of experience, E-Trade's easy-to-use platform keeps you in the know about your money 
every step of the way. But it's not just their platform that sets them apart. E-Trade has the people to offer guidance and support to make your money work hard for you. For more information, visit eTrade.com slash NPR. E-Trade Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Thanks also to Capital One. With the new Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new restaurant everyone's talking about and 4% on watching your team win at home. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required? Capital One Bank, USA, NA. The U.S. and Iran have been at odds for a long time, and we tend to think it all started with the Iranian Revolution in 1979. But that's not the whole story. This week on Throughline, we'll take you back to four days in 1953 that changed the U.S.-Iran relationship forever. Throughline, where we go back in time to understand the present. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. On the show today, finite ideas about preserving what we've got, what's left on planet Earth, and how to make sure we don't lose it. So in southwest England, there's a tiny hamlet called Totnes that looks exactly like you would expect a tiny hamlet in southwest England. It looks like... um, To look. uh, The center of the town has a very beautiful kind of high street with lots of Elizabethan buildings, slate hung, tall, narrow, uh, very kind of higgledy-piggledy beautiful colonnades where the buildings come out over the street with pillars holding up the buildings and a market square and a river running through the town. You know, like we've got these like restaurants in America called like Ye Olde England. Is it like (laughs) that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, kind of. So that's Totnes. Totnes, yeah. But thanks to Rob Hopkins, an environmental activist who lives there. I am there now. There's something that makes Totnes slightly different than other quaint villages in England. Yeah, particularly when the sun's shining like it is today. It's not always like this. What makes Totten special is that the people there are planning for a future where we start to run out of the thing that's made our modern world possible. Rob actually held up a bottle of it when he took the TED stage. This is a liter of oil. This bottle of oil, distilled over 100 million years of geological time, ancient sunlight contains energy equivalent to about five weeks hard human manual labor. We can turn it into a dazzling array of materials, medicine, modern clothing, laptops, uh, a whole range of different things. It, It gives us an energy return that's unimaginable historically. We've based the design of our settlements, our business models, our transport plans, even the idea of economic growth, some would argue, on the assumption that we will have this uh, in perpetuity. Yet when we take a step back and look over the span of history at what we might call the petroleum interval, it's a short period in history where we've discovered this extraordinary material and then based a whole way of life around it. But as we straddle the top of this energy mountain at this stage, we move from a time where our economic success, our sense of individual prowess and well-being is directly linked to how much of this we consume, to a time when actually our degree of oil dependency is our degree of vulnerability. And it's increasingly clear that we aren't going to be able to rely on the fact that we're going to have this at our disposal forever. So before we get back to what makes Totnes different, here's the reality we all face. Over the past decade, humans have figured out new ways to extract oil from the earth, and it means we have more of it than we've ever had before. And that's made us increasingly complacent about the need to find alternative energy solutions, even though we know that sooner or later, oil will run its course. And that until it does, burning that oil for our cars and factories and planes is making climate change worse. Because every year we've had more, slightly more of it, you know, my parents' parents' generation had less of it than my parents had. My generation had more than their generation have had. Of course, it's been remarkable. It's enabled us to do things that our grandparents could never have even dreamed of. But at the same time, when you then come up against a challenge that says, if you carry on, 
using fossil fuels in this kind of a way, you take humanity out of that band within which human civilization emerged and flourished and did everything that we associate with being human. Which is why it's no coincidence, Rob says, that so many of the stories we tell about a world without oil are stories about a world without humanity, like Wally sorting out trash on a humanless planet. Wow. Or other post-apocalyptic stories. In this wasteland. Like Mad Max. I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead. Let's go! What always intrigues me as well is how, as a society, we find it very easy to produce stuff like Mad Max or all these films about society unraveling and everybody eating each other and, you know, killer <laughs> zombie robot diseases on the loose, whatever it is. But where are the stories about how, as a society, we came together, we responded with creativity, with compassion, with ingenuity, to design a way through this to a safe place at the end? Okay, aside from the fact that that would make a really boring movie, it does nonetheless sound like a nice way to build a community. Which brings us back to Totnes, that small town in the UK where Rob lives. And what happened was that a couple years ago, Rob and a bunch of people there looked around and they realized that almost everything they bought or consumed depended on oil. So they started to ask questions. Do you need to use it to drive salads from one end of the country to the other? You know, do we need business models where uh, chain food businesses that assume that you should be able to walk into one of their restaurants anywhere in the country and the burgers and the salad taste exactly the same at any time of year? Yes, maybe use it for, for antibiotics, for medicines, for those things that you need. Um, but you don't extract it in Saudi Arabia, uh, process it, re- refine it in wherever, in Yemen, take it to China, make it into a cheap plastic toy that you then send to the US and it breaks within a week and ends up in landfill. So to be clear, Rob is not suggesting that towns like Totnes build a big fence and never let anything in or out. Or that, you know, Tanis will be making laptop computers and frying pans anytime soon. But the idea is that towns like Tanis, or anywhere really, could do a lot more to take advantage of their local resources. Uh, So just putting in place new gardens in the town. We have a garden share scheme that brings together people who want to grow food with people who have a garden that they're too busy or too elderly to use. So it's like a dating agency, matching people up together like that. The last six years we've been planting productive trees. It always puzzled me that in the last 40 years we've perfected the art of designing completely useless urban landscapes. So we've planted now about 300 fruit and nut trees throughout the town in parks and to little unloved corners. We have things that promote cycling. We we have a local currency called the Totnes Pound, which incentivizes people to support local businesses and uh, reconnects them with with the local economy of the town. So you can only spend that money in Totnes? Yeah, so if you go to the next town, it has no value at all. But in the town, uh, it's accepted by 80 or 90 traders now. And the notes are uh, much more beautiful than sterling, I think, any day. So if you were to take this model into the future, you know, this model that uses less oil and and is better for the planet, what does that future look like? Uh, So when economists talk about this idea, the multiplier effect, so if I go shopping in a local shop and I spend a dollar in in, in local businesses, in a local independent business, that leads to two and a half dollars worth of economic uh, benefit to my community. If I shop in a supermarket, it leads to one dollar forties worth uh, of economic activity. So for me, what it looks like is an economy based on that idea. And yes, designing communities around local resources is not necessarily a new idea, but it is a relatively simple one, an idea that is easily replicated anywhere. So the question I like to to leave you with, really, is for all aspects of the things that your community needs in order to thrive, how can it be done in such a way that drastically reduces its carbon emissions while also building resilience? Personally, I feel enormously grateful to have lived through the age of cheap oil. I've been astonishingly lucky. We've been astonishingly lucky. But let us honour what it has brought us and and, and move forward from this point. Because if we cling to it and continue to assume that it can underpin our choices, uh, the future that it presents to us is one which is really unmanageable. 
And by loving and leaving all that oil has done for us and that the oil age has done for us, we are able to then begin the creation of a, more, of a world which is more resilient, more nourishing, and in which we find ourselves fitter, more skilled, uh, and more connected to each other. Thank you very much. Rob Hopkins, his group is called Transition Network. You can find out more about what they're doing at transitionnetwork.org. And you can see Rob's full talk at TED.com. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. We're talking about how to use and preserve finite resources on the show today, which few people in all of human history did better than MacGyver. From that 80s TV show. MacGyver was my and remains my favorite uh, TV action hero. This is Navi Raju. He's an innovation consultant and MacGyver fan. He will find himself in all kind of crazy places, you know, in a prison cell in somewhere in you know, South America, whatever it is. All right, MacGyver, think. Rope. And you will just look around and, and you will find some resources. A smoke alarm, sheets of plywood. That for us doesn't look like yeah. something to create a solution. It just might work. But he can do it. That dude made, like, jetpacks out of toilet rolls. Yes, yes. I mean, what I like about this guy is that, you know, unlike James Bond, he doesn't wear a fancy suit. Uh, he doesn't have a Rolex. James uh, Bond or... had Q. MacGyver had <laughs> toilet rolls. <laughs> exactly. MacGyver is like, you know, it's a one-man show. Navi is probably such a MacGyver enthusiast because he grew up in a place where he had to be resourceful, in the city of Pondicherry, India. It's a very dry climate, so you don't have, uh, you know, much water. Uh, electricity was in short supply. For me, it's like living with less is almost like the norm. About 18 years ago, Navi moved to Silicon Valley, and he started consulting for tech companies. And instead of being wowed by their innovation, he was baffled by how casually they were wasting basic resources. The one thing that struck me all the time is to see in the evenings all these office buildings being lit up. That's something I never understood. Is like, you know, there's nobody working there after 6, 7 p.m. But I just see, like, it's all lit up. The other resource Navi noticed companies squandering? Money. Specifically when it came to research and development. Just because you invest more in R&D doesn't make a company, you know, more innovative. Uh, maybe we need to look at a different way of innovating. Maybe innovation, he thought, would happen in a more constrained environment. Because when you put a limitation on resources, you remove the limitation, right, on creativity because necessity is the mother of invention. Navi calls this idea frugal innovation, and he believes big tech companies could learn from inventors in the developing world. Here's his TED Talk. For the past seven years, I have met and studied hundreds of entrepreneurs in India, China, Africa, and South America, and they keep amazing me. Many of them did not go to school. They don't invent stuff in big R&D labs. The street is the lab. Why they do that? Because they don't have the kind of basic resources we take for granted, like capital energy. And basic services, like healthcare, education, are also scarce in those regions. Take Mansukh Prajapati, a porter in India. He has created a fridge made entirely of clay that consumes no electricity. It can keep fruits and vegetables fresh for many days. In Africa, if you run off of your cell phone battery, don't panic. You'll find some resourceful entrepreneurs who can recharge your cell phone using the bicycles. Let's go to Lima in Peru a region with high humidity and receives only one inch of rainfall each year. An engineering college in Lima designed a giant advertising billboard that absorbs air humidity and converts it into purified water, generating over 90 liters of water every day. They can literally create water out of thin air. In India, we call it jugad. Jugad is a Hindi word that means an improvised fix, a clever solution born in adversity. 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you're more liberated when you don't have as many resources. I think so, because I always believe that when you have nothing to lose, the sky's the limit, yeah. right? So I think that a lot of P companies, uh, after a while, stop innovating and die like a Kodak, right, who missed completely the digital revolution, is because they become so risk-averse. So that means they have too much to lose. So when you have too much to lose, you only take baby steps, you know, in terms of discovery of new things. But when you start from the bottom, you have nothing to lose. You are like an underdog. So when you are more on the offensive, you tend to innovate. I believe that the only way we can sustain growth and prosperity in the West is if we learn to do more with less. The good news is that's starting to happen. Several Western companies are now adopting frugal innovation to create affordable products for Western consumers. Let me give an example. In China, the R&D engineers of Siemens Healthcare have designed a CT scanner that is easy enough to be used by less qualified health workers, like nurses and technicians. This device can scan more patients on a daily basis and yet consumes less energy, which is great for hospitals, but it's also great for patients because it reduces the cost of treatment by 30% and radiation dosage by up to 60%. This solution was initially designed for the Chinese market, but now it's selling like hotcakes in US and Europe where hospitals are pressured to deliver quality care at lower cost. Ultimately, we would like to see developed countries and developing countries come together and co-create frugal solutions that benefit the entire humanity. So it sounds like you're proposing that we completely reimagine the way we make things. I would say yes, absolutely. We have to fundamentally redesign products, uh, rethink the, the whole supply chain. My feeling is that what you begin to see is that companies also are now recognizing, and the research shows more and more, there is indeed, in a way, a growing awareness among consumers around issues related to the environment. So they also expect companies to behave in a more environmentally uh, responsible way. So I think it's going to happen, you know, gradually in the U.S. But when I look at Europe or Asia, uh, I actually see a lot more aggressive moves by the governments, by citizens, and by companies to actually embrace new innovation techniques that are more resource efficient. As an Indian-born French national who lives in the United States, my hope is that we can harness the collective ingenuity of innovators from around the world to co-create frugal solutions that will improve the quality of life of everyone in the world while preserving our precious planet. Thank you very much. Navi Raju, he is the co-author of the books Frugal Innovation and Jugad Innovation. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. 350 cities in the world, just 30 teeth. Inside of our heads These are the limits To our experience It's scary But it's alright And everything is finite Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week on Finite Resources. If you want to find out more about who was on it, check out ted.npr.org. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour. With help from Daniel Shukin, our intern is Sharif Youssef. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Everything.